0: The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, delighted to be together with you. Thank you for listening and uh, thank you very much indeed for those of you who've done so much in the last few weeks uh, to help promote the show and and gain us thousands of new downloads, thousands of new listeners. I really appreciate that and uh, very much enjoy the opportunity I have. Nay, the privilege I have of being with you here every week. So uh, here is something that I've been uh, made very aware of during this past week, which is that there really are many people in the country who never, ever give a moment's thought to deeper questions. Essentially, they live unexamined lives, lives that revolve around entertainment and sensuality Lives in which work is the sort of price you pay in order to be able to have a partying, raving weekend. Well, that is, uh, it's sad, and it, uh, it impacts the quality of life enormously. One of the basic questions that uh, I, I do think at some, at some point, maybe it's only in the quiet, lonely, dark hours of the night, When everyone else is asleep and somehow or another you're awake and your very first instinct is to reach for your phone or your your, uh, tablet or your device and uh, turn it on and watch something, be entertained with the belief that somehow this will take you back to sleep, you'll be back in the arms of Morpheus in no time. And uh, this is the correct way to deal with it. Well, of course, the main thing it does is save you from the pain of thoughtfulness. Because being thoughtful can can be painful. It forces you to confront certain truths and certain realities. And one of the most fundamental of these, and there's just no getting away from this, if you are in any way uh, somebody who is sentient, somebody who is more than merely a uh, cunning combination of uh, oxygen and carbon and nitrogen and potassium, uh, if you are anything more than merely a sophisticated animal, but an animal nonetheless, that you know gets born, eats, drinks, mates, sleeps, and dies, if you're any more than that, then surely one of the great questions worth asking is how human beings arrived on this planet. And I can simplify this for you because it's not as if you've got to pick out of a range of 20 or 30 alternatives. As a matter of fact, you only have to pick out of two choices. Which of these is closer to your moral philosophy, which is closer to how you want your life to be lived because you see the um, the, the reality is that they cannot be ascertained on the basis of absolute truth. they can no, the answer to neither of these can be obtained on the basis of well, I'm a guy who believes in truth. I worship truth. I trust truth. And therefore, I will go with whatever is true. Look, um, that doesn't really work so well because the problem is what tool do you use to determine truth? And one of the default responses into which all of us find it so easy to slide, is, well, I'm a scientific sort of person. Uh, I will go with whatever science determines is the true response. And the problem with that, of course, is that science is but a tool. And while it is true that to a man who owns only a hammer, every problem looks like a nail... The fact is that there are more tools in the chest than simply a hammer. And picking the right tool for the job is clearly important. Uh, Let us imagine you are trying to determine the temperature in a steel-making furnace. Well, you would need a thermometer that reads, shall we say, from... 700 degrees to 7,000 degrees. Right, that would cover the, the range. You could even make it narrower than that. If you were trying to determine whether snow is likely today, then you'd want to know whether the temperature was sort of somewhere around about 32. If it was too low, like 22, eh, probably not going to snow. If it was too high, like about 42, eh, probably not going to snow. But if it's somewhere near 32, it's going to snow. So you need a thermometer that runs from, shall we say, um, maybe 18 or 10 degrees uh, to 50 degrees. Well, why not simply make a thermometer that today can be used to determine the likelihood of snow and tomorrow could be used to measure the temperature in a furnace in which I am hoping to cast some of those little lead weights that uh, you use for fishing. Now, uh, lead melts from a solid into a liquid at about uh, 620 degrees approximately, I think. And uh, being as I want to use the same thermometer that I used to tell the likelihood of snow, I'm now going to need a thermometer with a range of uh, about uh, 10 degrees all the way up to, shall we say, 700 degrees. And that'll cover me from snowy weather, freezing weather, uh, icy weather, all the way up to uh, a furnace melting lead. But wait, that's just today. Tomorrow, I actually want to melt some gold because I've got some old jewelry that is dated and uh, old-fashioned, and I want to cast it into something uh, modern and up-to-date for my wife, who is a modern and up-to-date woman. And so uh, gold melts at uh, about 1,900 degrees. So uh, I put the thermometer into the, the, uh, the, the, the cauldron, into the furnace I've got, and I've got the old pieces of jewelry. Then I'm watching the temperature go up. And as it begins to reach 1,900, 1,910 degrees, I can see little droplets forming on the surface of the lead and then the lead starts sort of falling in on itself, and then by 1920, 1930 degrees, the lead is all liquidy and is ready to pour into the mold as I wish. But wait, tomorrow I want to melt some iron, and iron melts at uh, about 2,800 degrees. And so it would be safe if I had a thermometer that read all the way from um, 10 degrees to 3,000 degrees, and then I can cover everything. I can use one thermometer for all my my needs. Uh, we're we're doing a roast, and uh, we want to put the roast in the oven at uh, 375 degrees for five hours. And by the way, uh, take no culinary advice from me. I just made up those numbers, and uh, I have absolutely no idea whether that makes sense for a Dalmonico roast, but uh, there it is. Uh, at any rate, I, I grab my one useful thermometer and uh, put it in the oven, 375 degrees, I can put in the, uh, the roast, and away we go. And then I want to check to see if my freezer that I took the roast out of is working. Well, the freezer should be keeping food at about uh, somewhere around about 20 degrees or somewhere thereabouts. So I've got to put my thermometer in the freezer. Okay, you get where I'm going with all this. And that is that the thermometer I describe doesn't exist. It simply doesn't exist. You cannot get a thermometer that will read temperatures from 20 degrees all the way up to uh, 3,000 degrees. It's not possible. Uh, There are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, Some of them have to do with the kind of material that is used. Uh, for certain thermometers. Uh, Thermometers are basically uh, uh, structured on the extent to which certain substances expand, like a basic medical thermometer. You might remember the old-fashioned thermometer your mother used to put under your tongue when you were trying to get out of going to school. And you probably discovered, as did I, that if her attention could be briefly diverted, and you gave the thermometer a few brisk rubs on your blanket so that friction would shove the temperature up, uh, you stood a fairly good chance of escaping the fate of being sent to school, particularly since you hadn't done your homework. And uh, that is how it would work. Of course, it was all too easy to overdo it and uh, create a temperature that either had your mother summoning the emergency ambulance uh, or realizing instantly that there was a problem. But that was the old-fashioned mercury thermometer. Uh, there are other s- expansion substances that are used. Alcohol is used in thermometers that sort of have a red reading. You sometimes find those. People put them on their windows so as they can see what the temperature is, is outside. But uh, uh, today it's much more common to use the fact that the electrical resistance of Uh, metals varies according to the the temperature of those metals. So that can be calibrated uh, to work correctly. But again, with all of these methods, we are always stuck with exactly the same problem, which is it is very challenging to get that kind of range because you want some accuracy. And so what you have to do is you've got to expand the range you care about because then you can get some accuracy. If you've got, imagine you had a, a thermometer that was six inches long. You know, think of that uh, old-fashioned clinical thermometer with mercury that you put under your tongue. If you know that thing read from uh, probably uh, ninety-three degrees up to one hundred and four degrees, so it had a range of ten degrees at most, and that's and that's how it worked, and it worked just fine. Um, and you could see that the the difference between A temperature of 101 and a temperature, normal temperature of 98, uh, you could see that there was a a range of about an inch and a half on the thermometer, so you could really read accurately. But if that thermometer had to cover a temperature range of, uh, you know, 3,000 degrees, then the difference of one or two degrees that makes a, a significant distinction if you're looking at somebody's health. But certainly doesn't make a huge distinction if you're melting lead. It just it doesn't work because the, the small uh, temperature change could not be noticed on it. Anyway, my point is that we have different thermometers for different purposes. You want to check the roast, you use an oven thermometer. You want to check your freezer, you've got a refrigerator or freezer thermometer. Uh, you want to melt gold or lead or iron, then you've got to use a furnace thermometer, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how it works. And uh, you have to realize that if you use the wrong thermometer for the wrong purpose, it will appear as if the thing you're measuring doesn't exist. So, for instance, if uh, if you put a thermometer designed for uh, a- an oven for a roast and you put that in your freezer to see if the uh, freezer is working, that Oven thermometer will will probably drop, you know, it'll show a temperature of 200 degrees. And you say to yourself, what? 200 degrees? My food's already spoiled. And you don't realize that your freezer's working just fine. You've used the wrong instrument. And uh, so it is. There are instruments that can detect sound. Uh, It might be a microphone connected to an oscilloscope or something like that. And uh, you can put it in a room, and you'll be able to know if there are noises uh, created in that room, particularly if you record it. Then there are other instruments that will detect whether there are radio waves in that room. Uh, Can you receive cell phone reception? Can you receive uh, broadcast radio, uh, FM radio? Can you receive television reception in that room? There are instruments that will tell you that. But if you use an instrument like that in a nuclear reactor to try and determine whether there are electromagnetic waves in the radioactive part of the spectrum, it won't work. And you'll say to yourself, oh, well, I guess there's no radioactivity here. I might as well proceed and everything will be fine. No, it won't be. You're using the wrong instrument. All of which is uh, my way of explaining that uh, it is possible to use the wrong instrument as we try and understand life around us. Science is an instrument, there's no question about it, but it is not the only instrument. The website is Rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over there and uh, see what is on sale this week for listeners to the podcast and uh, find out if those are things that can enhance your life. Have a look, read up about them. You can also read back issues of Ask the Rabbi, where we answer a different question relating to somebody's real life um, each and every week. And you can also read past Thought Tools and past Susan's Musings, and you can write to us as well. So all of that at RabbiDanielLappin.com, where uh, we will be able to stay in touch with one another, and uh, we will be able to stay connected which is the great magical mystery of human fulfillment, connection. More on that in just a moment as we return.
0: Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect. Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com
0: or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lapin returns with more of How the World Really Works on the Blaze Radio Network, On Demand.
1: Welcome back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And one of the ways in which the world really works is that when we have some kind of magic box to which we can uh, send our queries we end up making better decisions what I mean by that is that if you have some kind of uh, computer and every time you have a life decision to make your your child says something to you that needs a response uh, your boss at work asks you to do something that you don't feel, you should be doing or should be done at all, but whatever it is, and you need, you got to come back with a response. Wouldn't it be nice if you could quickly write the question down on a piece of paper, put it into the slip, uh, into a slot in the machine, turn a crank, press a button, out pops the answer. Well, obviously, we don't have something quite like that, but if you do have a fundamental vision of reality, if you do have some basic lens, then that very often serves as a very useful tool, lens, computer, uh, through which you can run challenging questions. And sometimes you simply have to say, uh, I need a little more time. Can I get back to you later on that? But at least you've got an approach to think through. What is the most important approach? Well, um, the most important approach is this question of what is what is true and how do you determine truth and uh, and fundamentally the question I've often referred to is the question that everybody you know and even if it's only in those quiet times when you're by yourself and you refrain from turning on a, a video or you f- refrain from turning on something audio and you don't even pick up a book. You simply stop and allow yourself to think. Uh, One of the questions is, how did human beings arrive on the planet? How are we here? How are there creatures who are capable of building skyscrapers, who are capable of fiddling with molecules, moving molecules around, Playing around with genetics on a micro level. How can we, how did this strange tribe of creatures uh, show up on this planet? A tribe of creatures that uh, does things that animals do, but at the same time also does things that no animals do. Yes, we do uh, eat and we drink. We uh, defecate, we urinate, uh, we mate. We do all kinds of things. And you think to yourself, well, I guess I must be an animal because I do all those things. But wait, what about all the things we do that are not animalistic at all? Things that we do that are very often against our physical interests, which animals do not do. Uh, we, um, We drink alcohol. We take drugs. We uh, write poetry, not to not to put them all in the same sentence, but just listing the countless number of things we do that no animal does at all. Uh, it it does it does signify that we are pretty remarkable things, and so it's worth asking, how is it that we are here? It's not as if we're everywhere. Right? turns out there's none of us on the moon, there's none of us on Mars. As a matter of fact, we have so far found no evidence that there is any of us anywhere else. But be that as it may, the fact is we are here. And the fact also is that there are only two ways of explaining our presence here. And that's why I said it's not as if you've got to choose from between 20 or 30 different alternatives. Uh, There really are only two different alternatives. And uh, they are, number one, well, it's very simple, Uh, through a lengthy process of utterly unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into plumbers, proctologists, ballerinas, and bookkeepers. That's what happened. And if I sound uh, jocular about that at all, you're utterly mistaken, because I consider it to be the height of bad manners to laugh at other people's belief systems. And that's exactly what this is. This is a belief system. Uh, The only other alternative is that uh, God created us in his image and put us here. There really isn't a third choice. And some people will say, well, you know, what happens if... uh, Spacemen from another galaxy planted us here as a sort of cosmic aquarium (laughs) to sort of watch us. Well, all that does is postpone the question of where they came from. So I think we're left with only two alternative choices. And uh, which one is true? We get absolutely nowhere on that because there are smart, thoughtful people on both sides of that. I would say that the side that pushes the approach, the secularized approach, that through a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into living organisms and those turned into horses and alligators and those turned into orangutans and gorillas and those turned into professors and uh, plumbers. Okay, fine. Uh, There tends to be more of an aggressiveness, more of a devout assertion that this is science. The only problem is that it isn't. It's belief. Uh, You see, not everything falls into the category of science in exactly the same way that not everything can be measured with any thermometer. Science is a a kind of thermometer. It doesn't cover the entire range of the human experience. Um, there is no science available. There is no scientific instrument available that you can play a uh, uh, the, the the Bach Sixth Symphony. Uh, I think it's called the Pastoral. I don't think there's a single instrument you could run that through. An instrument would say, "Hmm, yeah." I, I I think people would find this a moving piece of music. I think people people would would find themselves imagining certain things which I will list to you in Appendix 4. No, th- there's no instrument that will do that at all. In Science is just not the ultimate be-all and end-all. It doesn't answer everything. And so uh, if, uh, you know, do I prefer, in terms of great mountains visible from major urban areas, do I prefer Mount Fuji in Japan or Mount Hood in Oregon or Mount Rainier in Washington, that's not a scientific question. If the question was how high are these three mountains, that would be a scientific question. But which one do you prefer is not a scientific question at all. And in the same way, which explanation for the presence of the miracle of humanity on planet Earth do you prefer? That's not a scientific question because science is confined to things that can be measured and things that can be validated and things that can be verified. Science is not the approach that says, well, we can't think of anything else that would explain it, so this must be the explanation. That's never been accepted as a scientific explanation until the 20th century, until the great struggle. Between religion and secularism, the great struggle between the Judeo-Christian biblical faiths and the forces of secularism, until then, nobody ever dreamed of suggesting that, well, because we can't come up with any other way to explain how people got to the planet. Therefore, we are going to accept the uh, the, the idea that primitive protoplasm evolved into uh, modern orcan organisms. No, no. If you cannot validate it, you cannot prove it, you cannot show it, to say it has to have happened this way is not scientific, because there have been many times in the past where scientists of the day said, it has to be this way, and they were completely wrong, of course. So um, the the question of how we arrived on this planet, it's a good question. It's an important question, but it has to be resolved by your personal choice, not by means of science. And on what possible basis can you make that choice? Well, uh, simply on the basis of the various inevitable outcomes of how you decide. But um, let me come back to that. Let me explain those alternatives and those inevitable consequences, because as you know, when we make decisions, those decisions do have consequences, and this is no different. The website, rabbi com. love you to visit there, please. Be in touch with me, or be in touch with Mrs. Lappin, that's Susan, and uh, take a look at her writings, take a look at mine, uh, take a look at the things we do together. Actually, we do most of it together, to tell you the truth. And uh, you can also uh, see... Uh, TV shows, Uh, the website for our TV show is also available at our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, as over at the store are resources that can impact your life in the four areas of family, finance, faith, and friendship. All of that over at rabbidaniellappin.com back with you in
0: just a moment you're listening to rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network find more at the blaze.com slash radio revealing how the world really works this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network
1: back everybody the rabbi daniel lapin show with just a quick word of appreciation once again uh, for those of you who uh, share uh, the uh, this podcast sometimes on Facebook because we post it on Facebook at Rabbi Daniel Lappen. Uh, we post it at uh, uh, Twitter, at at Daniel Lappen. We post it at LinkedIn. and uh, very often those of you who use those uh, social media platforms, Uh, forward it or share it or send it or or direct people. We appreciate it very much. And uh, the evidence of your effectiveness is the growth of this podcast. And so uh, very much appreciated because the more it grows, the more effectively we can monetize it. And the greater a role that it plays in our overall financial needs and plans uh, the more time and creativity and production and dedication can go to it. Uh, that's that's pretty straightforward. And I know that it's fashionable to sort of pretend, uh, you know, not to have any monetary interest. You hear people saying all the time, well, you know, he may just be in it for the money. You know, when somebody's in it for the money, uh, you are likely to get a better job. <laughs> you really are. Uh, I've pointed out in the past that when uh, – I am looking for a mechanic for my car, and a mechanic says, yeah, I'll do it for you at cost. I say, Thanks very much, as politely as I can, and I run for my life. I don't l- even look back over my shoulder because there are only two possibilities either he d- has no intention of doing it at cost, in which case he's a liar, and if he'll lie about that, he'll lie about the condition of my car, or alternatively, He's, he's a naive, sweet person who likes me and, and will do it at cost. And the result is, as is only natural, I wouldn't expect anything different. People who are paying have to be taken care of first because, like everyone else, he also has to eat. And so that makes complete sense to me, and I always say to myself, okay, uh, no, I, I, I don't really think I want to do that. Um, I, I want to be... A legitimate part of your overall plan, and I want to pay you for the value I receive, and in exchange, I want the very best of your attention. And so, uh, people say it all the time. People disparage people. Oh, he's in it. He's in it for the money. I, yes, that's wonderful. You know, it's so easy to think of some really bad reasons why people are in it. Um, frankly, when people are in politics for the money, and many, many are, and let's let's not kid ourselves, it's a remarkable mystery of our times how people with no money go into politics and many, many years later, after uh, a stint in uh, the legislature, they come out, millionaires, a miracle. (laughs) And so when people are in politics for the money – To tell you the honest truth, look, it's not great. I I think it should be a genuine service. I don't think the political class should be paid and provided with job security and benefits so beyond that enjoyed by ordinary folks who are among the ruled rather than the rulers. Uh, But at least when a politician is in it for the money – Fine, he's corrupt. He's undermining our whole trust in our system of democracy and government. He's doing terrible things. But I personally am even less comfortable with a politician who's in it for power, the politician who's in it because of socialist ideologies. Those things worry me even more um, because that's a person who I think is – it's impossible to to work with that person because he is taking. He's doing everything he can to take the body politic in the direction he believes in. And um, I, uh, uh, our, our last president, I, in my mind, President Obama was not in it for the money. Uh, and I think it was, uh, in to my way of thinking, an absolutely disastrous presidency uh, because practicalities played absolutely no role it was all ideologically driven i think uh, the clinton presidency was in fact about money uh, largely about money and to tell you the truth it was not as bad a presidency as uh, president obama in my view i think it was a less destructive eight years than the eight years from um, from um, Uh, 2008 to 2016. So my my point just being that I um, (laughs) – all of this by way of thanking you because your efforts to expand the podcast simply means that the podcast becomes more important in my overall time and money planning and management, and that means I give it more attention and more resources, which is good for you, I think. So at any rate, all of that is, uh, uh, is is pretty obvious and straightforward. And this basic question of how we miraculous beings called humans arrived on this planet um, is, is really in, incredibly significant because how we decide to answer that question. And yes, you can't say, well, I'm a scientific person, therefore I'm going to go this way or I'm a this person, I'll go the other way. No. The way to answer that question is to ask yourself how you feel about both courses of action that follow inevitably. In other words, how you live your life really, really is impacted by the decision you make on those questions. Um, there's a story I've told in some of my books Previously, And I'm going to tell it to you just in brief because it, it really taught me uh, so very effectively how real the impact of these questions are and how significant are the consequences of how you answer these questions to your daily life. And uh, this is a question – excuse me, this is an example – um, of a story of one of my teachers was a, a, a fascinating and amazing rabbi, an elderly man um, who um, who really uh, exemplified an old world. He was in many ways a nineteenth-century rabbi, although obviously I knew him in the middle of the in the uh, during the first part of the second half of the twentieth century, uh, post World War II. And um, he was actually one of the reasons I came to the United States of America. I came to visit in America for three weeks. He was one of the people I wanted to meet because I knew he was an elderly man, and I wanted to be able to have this touch of tradition. I wanted to have this little link to uh, a a pre-World War II world, even a pre-20th century world of moral and religious outlook at any rate. Um, It was in uh, 1975 or 6, yeah, that he found himself uh, on on, uh, an Al Al airplane on a trip to Israel, and he he went to Israel every couple of years. Uh, He was traveling without his wife. It was a lovely, lovely lady, uh, but he was traveling along with two of his students because uh, he, he never traveled anywhere alone. There were always students who volunteered, to travel with him so he would never have to carry his suitcases by himself, he'd never have to stand on the corner and hail a cab by himself, that there'd be people there to look after him, if you like, Um, on a totally different level. It's like a rock star's entourage, right? Why do rock stars never seen in public by themselves? Uh, Because important people have people who want to be with them in order to save them from some of the uh, the, the minor – awkward challenges of day-to-day living. So uh, he finds himself on the plane, as, as people do. He was talking to his seatmate. His seatmate was an atheistic Israeli, and yes, uh, there are fewer today than there used to be because Israel was founded in 1948 by people who were predominantly uh, Russian communists. And uh, some, of, some of them were sort of still left over by the mid-1970s. And this gentleman was a uh, head of one of the great Israeli um, labor unions. So he was a very significant guy, very influential and very powerful. And um, he, nonetheless, uh, had a respect for the rabbi, alongside whom he was sitting. And the the two men started chatting. Um, s- just before takeoff, um, two of, uh, or one of the students of the rabbi, who was sitting back in coach, came forward with some slippers, and he untied the rabbi's shoes, and he put on his slippers. Um, and uh, sometime after takeoff, when the uh, seatbelt light was off, uh, one of the other students, the young man, came and uh, handed the rabbi a package of sandwiches. And uh, at this point, the eyes of, the, uh, of his seatmate were bugging out of his head, and he said, Rabbi, tell me, like, are, are those your sons? I'm so impressed the way your sons are, are, are taking care of your every need. He said, look, um, you know, my feet uh, swell on a long flight, so I don't, my shoes get uncomfortable, so that's why I have slippers, and I don't like the airline food. My wife always sends me um, sandwiches that I do like, he says, "Well, I really admire the way your sons take." He says, "No, those aren't my sons; those are my students. If they were my, if I had my sons here, then you'd really see them take care of me." And at that point, he tells that uh, the eyes of his uh, conversationalist, his uh, fellow traveller, began to fill with tears. And he said to him, "What's the matter? I, have I said something to hurt you?" And the um, uh, the labour union leader, this powerful labour union leader, said, "No, no, no. It's just..." Uh, I just felt um, sad for a moment because I've got four sons, and uh, they've never done anything for me, even approaching what I've seen your students do for you. If anything, I do things for them all the time. And uh, the rabbi immediately said to him, he patted his hand, and he said to him, don't feel bad. Um, it's, It's wonderful when our children follow our teachings and your children have followed your teachings just as surely as my children have followed my teachings. And the labor union leader looked puzzled, and he said, what what do you mean? And the rabbi said, look, um, I teach my children that we are descended from God, that we're close to the angels, that God created us, and here we are. You teach your children that we're descended from baboons, and here we are. Now, if we're descended from baboons, then your children are one generation further away from baboons. Therefore, your children are a higher life form than you are. Therefore, it's only appropriate that you should serve them, not that they should serve you. But me, I teach my children that we are derived from God and that every generation is one generation removed from God. Therefore, my children are one generation further away from God-forming human beings, and therefore it's only appropriate that they should serve me. I'm a generation closer to that uh, godly source. And at that point, he tells me that uh, the labor union leader really broke down and wept. And and that's kind of interesting. Um I can see it, but it is a very good example of how you decide to answer this question. And the sooner you answer it, the better. Uh, The type of spouse you marry, how you'll run your marriage, how you'll earn a living, how you'll deal with money, how you will raise children, all of these things can be so impacted by how you answer those questions, you see. Enormously so. And so when I talk about a computer into which you can pop a question. This is what I'm talking about, because there are so many questions that if you won't get an answer from this uh, computer, at least you'll get some guidance. And and you say to yourself, should I do this or that? And I can give you some examples, but we're uh, out of time on this segment. So uh, let's pause right now. I'll come back and tell you just a little bit more about the uh, this struggle between how these qu- this question can be answered in two conflicting and incompatible ways. The uh, website is rabbidaniellappin.com. <laughs> I hope you don't get too tired of me reminding you of the website. But there are new listeners to the show all the time, thanks to you, that is. And uh, new listeners also deserve to know uh, how they can – connect more closely with the ancient Jewish wisdom teachings of uh, our work, uh, how you can connect with the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, um, how you can listen to uh, audios, watch videos, how you can read more of the material that ancient Jewish wisdom teaches on family, finance, faith, and friendship, the four F's, the four fantastic, famous F's uh, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. You'll also see that we always have a life-enhancing resource on a special sale price uh, for people who listen to the show. And you will find that right there at
0: rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. Look how far that party has come. The Democrat Party since 1963 when JFK died. It's unbelievable. It's unrecognizable. The Democrat Party has more in common now with the Communist Party than they do with JFK. Pat Gray. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network. On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lapin.
1: Hi, everybody. i back with the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show. Great to be together, and uh, I do enjoy the privilege of sharing time with you once a week here on this show. And uh, we're talking about the decision that each and every thoughtful person has to make on the question of how we arrived here. And one of the interesting aspects of that always is that if you take the approach that we are here, because a good and loving God created us in His image and placed us here, then we have to ask ourselves when, at like what point did man begin to abandon God? You know, it, you've got to think it would have been a little awkward for one of God's early beneficiaries, uh, shall we say, such as Noah, uh, to suddenly inform His sons that you know what? God doesn't exist. I'm here because of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution. Uh, I am an inevitable consequence of the collision of amino acid molecules. Like, would Noah's sons have said, hey, Dad, do you remember that big boat you built? Like, why did you do that? Who told you there was going to be a flood coming? <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it would have been a little little difficult, I think. Um, even when England rejected Winston Churchill, following his leadership all the way during World War Two, and uh, in the uh, election of 1945, uh, after winning World War Two. Yes, the British uh, rejected Winston Churchill and uh, he, after having been Prime Minister, when he became Prime Minister in 1940, all the way till the war was won, 1945, goodbye Winston Churchill. Although he did become Prime Minister again, by the way, in 1951 uh, and he served until 1955. However, uh, the point is that when the British uh, rejected him in 1945 – uh, there there was uh, a sort of awkwardness. Many, many British felt ungrateful. They felt uh, that there, there was something unseemly, that to reject the man who'd won World War II so soon after the war was won was very much a case of, well, thanks very much. You've not done much for us lately, so out he goes. And so who would have been the ingrate who was first to terminate man's relationship with God? Well, Ancient Jewish wisdom does talk about this and uh, says that the early onset of agnosticism was a very slow and gradual process. It was not traceable to any one particular individual. Uh, it, you know, it started off with people believing that nature was a uh, uh, an, uh, part of God's being, as it were, and and so initially when uh, connection with God himself was the way of the world originally, what began to happen is perfectly natural, perfectly normal, and perfectly wrong, which is that people began to see the sun and the moon and uh, eventually mountains and lakes and oceans and trees as the agents of God. And then after a few more generations had elapsed, uh, the God part fell away, and nature itself became the, uh, essentially the God. And the, the funny thing is that it didn't take nearly as long for this to happen in our own times. We went from a time when the overwhelming majority of Americans would have uh, described themselves as Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians. Um, That began to change in the early 60s, and uh, now you've got probably a very substantial proportion, I don't think it's half, but you have a lot of people in America today and elsewhere around the world uh, who by all rules could be considered to be nature-believing pagans. That's true. They really are. And so... Um, to go back to the original story, uh, going back a long, long time, uh, after centuries of knowing God, people little by little began to see the wonders of you know, rocks and rivers and mountains and oceans as very natural manifestations of God's power. Little by little, gradually, incrementally, they forgot the source of those creations, and they began to embrace nature as a replacement for God finally constructing an entire philosophy that was based only on their observation of nature. Well, fast forward to the 20th century. Not much has changed. The social sciences, which are the closest we come to an American state religion, uh, are based largely upon our observation of natural and physical science. The trouble is that social scientists have expanded the implications of natural scientific discoveries way beyond their originators' uh, intentions. Um, Paul Johnson is a historian, British historian, I've quoted very often. He wrote a wonderful book called Modern Times. It was a history of the 20th century. Paul Johnson explains that in 1919, when... Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity was proven, one of the unintended side consequences began to circulate all around the world, and that is people began to reject all absolutes. They took the theory of relativity with its implications for space and time and light uh, to be a general rule that everything is relative. And they rejected absolutes. They felt that Einstein had pronounced that not only time and space were relative, but also good and evil. And uh, above all, values. There were all kinds of values. They're all relative. Now, it took 40 or 50 years for that to find its way into the general culture, but it did. The natural sciences had influenced social science. The study of stars and the speed of light had brought forth a new religion. Relativity had spawned relativism. And and that's the way I see the story of the first half of the 20th century. About the same time, another idea in natural science was becoming popular. People were beginning to learn all about Charles Darwin and his theory of natural selection. And although Darwin had written Origin of Species, uh, what, about half a century, 50 years earlier, his message of a godless world in which randomness reigned matched the mood of the start of the 20th century. So between Einstein's relativity and Darwin's idea of humans are here because of a process of unaided materialistic evolution, it's, it sort of rode the wave. It, it caught on. Clearly, Neither Einstein nor Darwin were agnostic, nor did either intend any broad application of their scientific ideas in society generally. But nonetheless, um, the impact of the physical world on us is so compelling that in the absence of a deep and firmly held religious conviction, most of us adjust. And this is a very important point. Most of us adjust our spiritual schematic to accommodate what we see in nature. It really is only a Bible-based religion that helps us adjust what we see in nature to our transcendent spiritual schematics. One of the enormous gifts of Judaism and Christianity that made scientific development possible was the, uh, the deconsecration of nature, if you like. I think that's a good way of putting it. Uh, up till then, nature had been consecrated. Nature was holy. And gosh darn it, here we are back again where nature is holy. If you don't recycle, you are expressing a religious travesty. You are being a heretic. You are denying the consecrated nature of nature. So what most people are doing out there is adjusting their spiritual schematic to what they see in nature. The correct thing, what what we have to do in order to stay true to reality and connected with God, what we have to do is we've got to adjust what we see in nature to what is our existing transcendent spiritual schematic. The fact is that today always calls more loudly than yesterday or tomorrow, right? right? The, the present has the most compelling and urgent call on our natures. It's what I want now. Am I willing to sacrifice what I want now in order to have a better tomorrow? A minority of people—only a minority of people—will do that. Am I willing to restrict what I do today because it violates the principles of yesterday and it violates the beliefs of my ancestors? Very few of us willing to do that. Um, I mean, that's 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 the truth, as. As as our fellow citizens, both both in the United States and in other parts of the Western world, as we try and gain clarity of our socio-political moral landscape, the present calls more loudly, and the physical reality of nature calls more loudly. Um, it's. we've got to realize that in just the same way that yesterday and tomorrow do not press upon us as urgently as today, so it is that religion, spirituality, God, do not call us as loudly as the call of the body, the call of the physical world that we inhabit. And so this is one of the reasons why the is such a thing as people who profess to be religious but nonetheless modify religious tradition to accommodate current popular indulgences like homosexuality and abortion and uh, gender fluidity etc 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 because they're not quite ready to cast aside the traditions of religion but at the same time the press of the present and the of the physical reality around us um, is so urgent and so strong that they cannot help adjusting their spiritual matrix and so they do and they say well God didn't really mean that uh, homosexuality is prohibited or God didn't really mean male and female he created them And, and this is why on the left wings of both Judaism and Christianity you do find uh, the most extraordinary arguments being made and um,
0: uh, by
1: the way this this tendency also explains why uh, people in fact it was not that long ago that a fairly popular magazine argued that um, uh, infidelity in marriage was genetic right and um, and therefore since we are nothing but animals, right? Remember, we got here because of an unaided process of lengthy materialistic evolution. That means that we are creatures of our molecules. And if uh, infidelity in marriage is genetic, and of course it is, right, because it mostly lures men, not women, more men than women, but women increasingly, Uh, the only question is whether we should build our social and moral rules upon that observation of nature, that's all. Uh, People who are Bible-believing religious Jews and Christians would say that since that violates our spiritual schematic, infidelity should be avoided. Scientific naturalists say that anything natural is normal. I will tell you as well that the widespread acceptance of social Darwinism had enormous impact on the lives of all Americans. For instance, it was only in that atmosphere that had been created by Darwinian thinking that the sometimes wacky educational ideas of a man called John Dewey, who, by the way, himself had no children, never had kids, n- only way those ideas could have ever gained ground in America was because Darwinism had sowed... had had plowed the ground and made it hospitable to the seeds of John Dewey, uh, for whom we can largely be grateful, to whom we can be largely grateful, for the appalling and colossal chaos and mess of our current public educational system. Uh, Incredibly, when you think about it, the world's greatest institution dedicated to the disseminating of ideas, right, Americans... America's public school system, which was a triumph for so many years until the early 60s, was essentially placed in the hands of a man who cryptically claimed the ultimate problem of production is the production of human beings. I'm not kidding. John Dewey, who, into whose hands American public education was placed, literally said the ultimate problem of production is the production of human beings, well, Think about this. If we see ourselves as nothing more than sophisticated animals, then schools are society's breeding pens. And Dewey was was certainly correct with that and correct when he said schools do have a role and an important one in producing social change. Can you believe it? When all along, for 200 years, people thought schools in America were for educating young people and acculturating them to become part of society, says he, schools have a role and an important one, producing social change. However, should Darwinism and its social implications ever be rejected, the way will finally become clear for the repair of our public educational system. But without that, I think it's a hopeless quest. What about our criminal justice system? you got to realize how acceptance of Darwinism's implications has impacted our legal system. Do you remember that once upon a time this system guaranteed that the citizens of Boston enjoyed greater security in their streets than citizens in Bosnia? Well, that's no longer true. Crime has been normalized. It's been legitimized because we do not accept the term morality. Because if you take answer number one to the fundamental question of our presence on the planet, then the word morality has no meaning. One of the uh, high priests of of Darwinism was a fantastic Harvard biology professor, Stephen Jay Gould, an amazing teacher, an amazing writer. But he was really one of the high priests of Darwinism. And one of the things he wrote was, I do not see how we, the titular spokesman for a few thousand mammalian species, can claim superiority over insects who will surely outlive us all. And he meant it. He was an honest guy. He started off with the basic conviction that we're here because of a lengthy process where molecules turned into bigger molecules, and those turned into uh, bigger, bigger molecules, and little by little – all of these things combined and became the animals. That was the position he took. And if that was the position you start with, then on what possible basis do you have the right to say that a dolphin is superior to a cockroach or that a human being is superior to a pig? You can't say that. And sure enough, um, Stephen Jay Gould, who never disappointed me, he was an honest spokesman for secular naturalism. He was always very good at this. I, I, I usually read his columns reliably and regularly. Um, Cornell University had a professor, William Provine, again, fascinating guy, honest guy. And um, he says, quite correctly, that modern science directly implies that free will, as it's traditionally conceived, does not exist. As simple as that. And he's exactly right. Right. Because if we are all nothing but animals, then we all act instinctively. Tell me, does a wolf have free will whether to kill the lamb of a rancher? Of course not. If he's hungry, he eats the lamb. That's all there is to it. Morality plays no part in that, and free will no plays no part in that. William, Professor William Provine was exactly right. Answer that fundamental question the wrong way. And free will is ripped out of the social equation. And if free will is ripped out of the equation, then our entire system of um, criminal justice flies out the window. Because you cannot punish people who didn't have free will. It's very important. The message is loud and clear. Your actions have no more significance than those of a cockroach. What is more, I want to say, that like a cockroach, you are in no position to make moral choices of your own free will. When you commit some hideous brutality, it's not that you decided to do so. There are other background reasons that caused you to do it in exactly the same way that, uh, as I said, when a wolf eats a sheep, it's, it's, it's because it's a wolf, and it's because it's for external reasons. It's because the farmer didn't build a proper pen in which to keep his sheep. And uh, and we are now moving down that exact path. Right? It's, it, it's always a reason that causes crime. Poverty, which, by the way, is an incredible insult to your grandparents who went through very, very tough times and never stole as much as a loaf of bread. But nonetheless, today the popular belief is... Uh, financial uh, economic stress in the economy causes an increase in crime. Yeah, really? No, not true at all. Um, always external circumstances cause crime, and we're we're watching in the nineteen sixties up till the present time period. The, um, the the this basic idea was was fully absorbed by criminals, as well as by judges and juries. And once that happened, civility and safety were doomed. Look, um, I mean, in spite of the devastation caused by 20th century's mass abandonment of God, I'm optimistic and hopeful about America's future. The reason? I actually do see signs of an incipient religious revival. And in the same way that the great religious revival of the early 18th century helped to launch our nation, and the religious revival of the 19th century ended slavery, I think a 21st century revival could well help restore our civilization. I'm, I'm, I'm really a very big believer in it, and part of it is uh, the new found partnership. Jews and Christians, Jews and Christians standing together, and that's exactly why I serve uh, one of the most important organizations, I believe is the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, and uh, by the way, you will see that at our website as well, if you go to either aajc.org or rabbidaniellappin.com you can head over to read about the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, and if your heart calls upon you to support it Uh, blessings on that and uh, we all appreciate that very much indeed as well but until we're together next week i want to wish you a week of good health and prosperity i'm rabbi daniel
0: lapin take care and god bless this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network